0: Now if he decided to never write another horror book again at this point in his career, do I think he would have gone on to still be a successful author? I do. Um, I think he's just too good um, in, in whatever he writes to where that wouldn't you know uh, it wouldn't be the case. but would he be as successful? I don't know about that.
1: Welcome friends to episode 298 of the Ink to Film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss Rob Reiner's 1990 film, Misery. So continuing to fill out our Stephen King body of work for the podcast, we have now seen the Rob Reiner adaptation which uh, reportedly is one of Stephen King's top 10 adaptations, in his opinion.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I to be I'll be excited to hear what your your thoughts are on it um, and whether or not that lines up with with how you felt. This was, I think, my first time seeing this thing all the way through. Um, I, I'd seen clips of it, but but never the whole movie. Um, definitely an experience. I, uh, I do want to apologize. I'm feeling a little under the weather. Um, just seems to be a cold, um, but it is it is worsening and I'm a little bit congested. So if you hear me sounding a little off today, that's what's going on. Playing through it though,
1: yeah. Keep me in coach. So you say it's the first time you've seen this. Was it, uh, did it live up to the book for you? What kind of, what are your first reactions to it here?
0: I enjoyed it. I had a good time. Um, I, I noticed we had William Goldman as the, uh, the screenplay author. Yeah, which yeah. Uh, is the author of The Princess Bride, another like favorite from the podcast. And I thought, you know, a fun connection there.
1: And previously worked with Rob Reiner for The Princess Bride as well. So like that team, yeah. the team behind,
0: you know, Princess Bride is here in Misery as well. Right. Which is, I mean, that's one of your favorite movies, right? So love Princess uh, Bride. Yeah. I don't I don't know, man. I am a bit mixed about some of the changes. Um, There isn't, there was an element of humor that was mm-hmm. definitely introduced to this movie that I think is not there in the book. Um, and for the most part, it worked like, uh, you know, th- these characters, um, Virginia and Buster uh, are, are kind of like comic relief as Buster's investigating uh, Paul Sheldon's disappearance.
1: They definitely felt like Rob Reiner characters, right? Yeah, definitely. In watching this, it feels different because, you know, we get Stand By Me, which we also covered Rob Reiner. He directs Stand By Me before he directs Misery. So this is his second Stephen King adaptation. Um, and I, from what I understand, he actually saw The Shining in 1980 and was like, oh, I want to make Stephen King adaptations. And then, yeah. you know, his production company is called Castle Rock, which is a reference to Stephen King's work. Sure. Uh, Castle Rock Entertainment.
0: Yeah, and this this is a famous one. I think a lot of people I've heard uh, tout this one as one of their favorites. I thought there was a little cheeky, like, Shining visual reference at, at one point, which is a bit of a spoiler, so I'll wait until we're past our spoiler break. Um it definitely felt like this was designed to appeal to Stephen King fans in a way uh, that some of the adaptations don't. It was fun. I do think the look of it is a little dated. Um, it's one of those things where there's certain films from the 90s that you look at and go like, yeah, this looks like it's right out of the 90s. I don't know what it is. It's like, I don't know if it was an aesthetic choice of the time to favor just like really bright scenes constantly and like have very little shadow. Um and and almost everything looks overlit to me. Um, but it's this film is not alone. Like a lot of films from the 90s looked this way. Um, yeah. Do you know if that was just like a decision people made or if that was something to do with the technology and lighting at the time? Well,
1: I know that it's not just like, it's not that they're being held back by the technology because there are movies from that time period that don't necessarily look the way that you're saying. So yeah. in my opinion, it's a directorial choice and a, like a director of photography choice that they are more interested in I think that they definitely play with, you know, cinematic lighting here. I, I guess I get what you're getting at because this is a very this could be considered a very dark and dramatic story. I, I don't I don't remember
0: right now seeing a lot of that represented with shadow and sort of There was a couple of scenes, right? A couple of moments where they would do it, but um, you know, 90 percent of this movie is extremely well lit.
1: And it could be an aesthetic choice, just as like approaching this story. Maybe there was something about that that they didn't want to maybe lean into
0: that style of lighting. So it really comes down yeah. to like creative choices. But well, again, I'm thinking back know. to like Princess Bride and um, Stand by Me. Like those movies both kind of look similar. So it could yeah. also just be a Rob Reiner. That's how he likes his films to look. Sure. And those are those are '80s movies as well.
1: So mm. maybe yeah. early late '80s, early '90s kind of thing that you're
0: seeing. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of visual artistry going on that I found myself in awe of. Like I like I am with some of the my favorite movies that we watch on this podcast where I'm like, oh my God, I love the way this looked and it was so so cleverly done and the color was just right and the mo- it was so moody and like evocative like sure. there's just very little like that for me here. Um it felt kind of workmanlike. Like we're gonna show you the scenes and we're gonna let the, the performances carry and they are good and, and, and Kathy Bates in particular is fantastic in this movie and, and I think absolutely kills it um as as Annie Wilkes and I think there's a reason that she has become sort of synonymous with Annie Wilkes more than the more than the character in the novel like everybody thinks of Kathy Bates now
1: instantly uh like career making role here she she yeah. absolutely kills it I do want to talk about visually what you're talking with some of the stuff you're talking about though because I was thinking about this this film is purposely stripped back in some ways mm. and I think uh specifically one thing was striking me so much I think this is hearkening back to th- thrillers, not of the 90s, 80s, 70s, having seen Psycho in the last few months. I was thinking a lot about the way that Alfred Hitchcock shoots and the way that he, the the shots, I don't want to call them predictable, but they are, you kind of know, you're not like necessarily surprised by the shot selection, but when you objectively look at it, and this is something I was kind of mulling over, it's almost like the correct choice of shot with a thriller. It does a lot to help build tension. It's going to convey certain information to you like a cutaway to a to a tighter shot is for a reason they're Mm -hmm. showing you something purposely i guess in the 50s it's not a ton of misdirection like the the thriller and the misdirection is like in the actual story itself and um yeah i i just felt like a hitchcockian look to this and then i felt really vindicated when i was doing my research because i read that rob reiner studied alfred hitchcock's movies to figure out how to shoot a thriller watching every single one before filming this yeah Apparently, Reiner had Hitchcock on the brain so much that James Caan overheard Reiner chastising himself one day on set, asking himself, quote, Who do you think you are, Alfred Hitchcock?
0: I mean, that's cool to see someone inspired by a great like that and, and, and try and use it. I, I think it did have have that a bit of that feel. Maybe that's why it seemed a little dated to me at times, because it was harkening back to like an older style of filmmaking.
1: I think that's what it is. I think it's harkening back to more modern thrillers. I expect to be surprised by shot selections in a way that like the film is also surprising me. And here it was like a lot of being trapped in the same room a lot of like returning to similar shots and i do think there are a couple of creative ones that stand out to me like for example some of these like really tight almost like right in the face of the character shots when things are getting tense but the 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 way that the editing builds and the music builds tension and the way that like you get the slow pushes in with a dolly or just these like really wide shots that show the entire like there's a scene near the end know the climax where like the scene is just playing out the 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 confrontation is playing out in a wide basically the whole time which i think adds a lot and it does kind of harken back to that more simplistic style of storytelling
0: uh you mentioned the music so i wanted to ask you about that too because i i found some of the musical cues a little frustrating because they would they would happen before yeah the line comes that is itself like the alert to paul sheldon that that Annie Wilkes is saying something ominous. Like, it would, it would, the music would be the first thing I would hear that, yeah. the, like, something creepy is going on before the line was delivered. And, and I think that's a, you know, a choice that a director's making, but I would always rather the line lead and then the music sort of either arrives simultaneously or follow.
1: Yeah, I noticed that a few times as well. And I think that, that again, harkens back to maybe a different time of,
0: of filmmaking. And
1: maybe we're more cued in now to really pick up on all these things, but the music yeah. is meant to be subliminal. So like for it to start, hopefully you're so drawn in by the performances you're not even realizing why you're uneasy and that there's even mm. music going on until it's built to that moment of tension. Um, I think that's the intent there. But yeah, I did notice that as well. And and was also kind of, I found it to be a little jarring as yeah. well because and it brought attention to itself for, for my modern yeah that's the thing like i
0: want the music to be background but when all of a sudden the music changes and she hasn't said anything creepy just yet and then she says something creepy like it draws attention to that music shift
1: and maybe it has something to do with just like the the uh Unpredictable nature of Annie Wilkes. Who, like you like what? Maybe the music sometimes was building up, and then she would say something that wasn't necessarily threatening. And and so they may have been playing with us in that way as well. I'd have to
0: see it again to know for sure. Yeah, maybe. Uh, we were definitely getting some really good sort of physical performances here, especially by James Caan. Uh, I know we we saw him in The Godfather, um, which I'm ex- I'm going to be watching again here soon, as we've discussed on our bonus episode. So I'm excited to to revisit him and. Um, see him in something else here. He's definitely a familiar face I've seen in lots, but he, he was good. I, I don't think he's the standout that that um Kathy Bates is, but him having to fling himself around with these legs and and yeah. um the way he has to like demonstrate pain and 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 discomfort at the same time, he's a little bit of like a slick sort of elite author who's a little out of touch. And I think that came across a little more in the film version of Paul Sheldon than the book version of Paul Sheldon. Uh, maybe just because Stephen King like inhabits the, the role of an author so well that he's able to show us like all these different sides to it and make it a little bit less gl- glamorous. Whereas this version of Paul Sheldon is such a glamorous, like New York elite, right? Like you see, he, in, in some ways I, I didn't want to be on his side when he would be so dismissive and kind of turn his nose up at some of the just like folksier moments that were coming from Annie Wilkes. It was a little snobby at times. And and so it kind of muddied the water a little bit. But then Annie would turn around and do something so horrible that you're then right back on his side. Um, But I thought that was a little different than what we got in the book where Annie was out of the gates, like a little more immediately creepy and um, dangerous seeming. And the the danger of the situation was driven home earlier in the book. Whereas here, I think uh, they kind of let it draw out a little bit. He's ta- he's asking about the roads being clear and can I use the phone and like it seems to me like maybe he hasn't even figured out yet how just how much danger he's in whereas the book version of Paul Sheldon we we picked up on um his his suspicion that he was in danger was you know occurred very early you get almost halfway through the film before he kind of realizes the the
1: gravity of the situation you said like James Conn in this role was kind of outshined by kathy bates in that role that was sort of the problem with pitching this movie to to a lot of different actors it was offered to william hurt twice kevin klein michael douglas harrison ford dustin hoffman robert de niro al pacino richard dreyfuss gene hackman and robert redford they all turned it down and maybe not for all the same reasons but i did read that warren Beatty was like on the hook to play the role and eventually kind of turned it down because he felt like, well, you know, the, the big shining star in this movie, the, the role that everybody should want is the Kathy Bates, uh, Annie Wilkes role. James Caan took the role and a lot of these people who turned it down eventually said that they regretted turning it down because it is kind of this is definitely one of James Kahn's more uh popular or recognizable roles
0: yeah he's not he's not bad in it he just gets outshined a little bit but that's yeah yeah, like you're saying the kind of the nature of the role it was a it was a
1: physical challenge too because i think I i think i read he he spent like 14 or 15 weeks basically in a bed um and you know he's having to do a lot of this physical physicality in the role uh so yeah i just i just wanted to mention like you picked up on that and i think a lot of actors looking at this role maybe had did as well but ultimately mm. i think he did a good job with it and and like i said it's pretty memorable as far as his performances are concerned um and then let's just talk about kathy bates and annie wilkes because yeah um she really does like I, at this point in her career she was like doing a lot of television and wasn't necessarily that well known she brought a lot to this role and it was it was like you said there's some humor here even yeah. some of the, the ways that she says things she can be this like sort of folksy religious character that says a bunch of stuff that we find to be funny as the audience and then flip it on it like out of nowhere into this like really dramatic and and uh you know scary really performance that seems unhinged in a lot of ways and and with the way that she expresses that in the face Uh, in her face in a lot of these situations is like it's really haunting and and you can kind of see why this film is like I think Annie Wilkes I read is like number 17 on the scariest villains of all time kind of lists as far as horror films are concerned Um, and it's because of that switch and and that I think really because of Kathy Bates range
0: yeah I agree with all that she was she was incredible she had this power to make Annie Wilkes seem pathetic and pitiable in a way, where you feel bad for her, um, and then she would almost switch into this like childlike moment where she's like playing with the pig and like snorting and running around, and there's something a little bit unsettling about that too because she's clearly you know an adult woman and kind of behaving like a child, so that's a little unsettling. But you know you still kind of have empathy for this character, but then she would fly into these rages. And um, without going into the catatonia that was described in the books, I thought, I wondered if we were going to get that. She never really froze in that way, Um, but she would just like get explosive and then she would kind of have to reset. Um, And there was even a part, I think it was when she was talking about the stage, the chapter plays, I think they were called, where she was This is right out of the book where she was complaining about um, a a switch that was made. And she's like, that's not how it was. And that's not what happened last week. She works herself up into this explosion of anger. And I think at the end, like it's getting closer and closer. Her eyes like kind of go a little bit out to either side. And just like it was just for a moment. And it was so like disturbing looking. I don't know. It really got me. And I was like, damn, that's that's really incredible.
1: Imagining the production of this film too is so interesting because it really does take place basically in one bedroom. Probably so a pretty low a
0: budget. Seems like you wouldn't need a lot for this. Yeah. I mean you got some helicopter flying and some 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 vehicles, but like there's not that many locations, not that many actors, like a pretty small cast.
1: I would say probably relatively small budget, but you have to like assume certain budget with the stars that were involved yeah. and and you know some of that kind of stuff. Uh, sure. You mentioned the helicopter flight, so I just want to say it now. In one of those scenes, uh, Rob Reiner makes a cameo, has a cameo as a helicopter pilot. Oh, um, he's the pilot?
0: He's the pilot when the sheriff is looking around in the snow. I was looking for a Stephen King cameo, but I guess this is, I know at a certain point in his career, he starts making a lot of cameos and then that's mm-hmm. become a thing that he does a lot in a lot of his films now. Um, and I was wondering if this was going to be at the edge of that, if he was going to show up or not, and I didn't ever see him. Um but I, I guess I wasn't on the lookout for Rob Reiner. I didn't know what he looked like.
1: I, I want to talk a little bit about how this was produced and, and how you know this, the script came to uh, Rob Reiner here. So producer Andrew Scheinman read Stephen King's novel, Misery on an airplane and later recommended it to his director partner at Castle Rock Entertainment, Rob Reiner. Reiner eventually invited writer William Goldman to write the film's screenplay. Rob Reiner was questioned before heading into production, if this was really the right project for him as his background was mostly comedy up to this point. He stated, quote, it's important for me to find my way into the film. And as you will see, the movie is really about a man who is trapped by his own success and is desperately trying to break out and establish himself in a different way. I felt very much those feelings when I finished All in the Family. Um, and I think it's important to note and interesting to note that Rob Reiner chose to key in on that part of Stephen King's work. Because that's sort of what he related to. Because there are a couple other yeah. layers that aren't as important really to, to the to the story here. Specifically in the book we had the addiction, which was somewhat addressed. Like he was clearly using some of the pain medications and things like that. But yeah, it but wasn't he,
0: he, early on he start he stops taking them and just starts starts sort of squirreling them away and there's no real addiction element to it that I could detect. It wasn't like he was relying on her for, for more drugs that he desperately needed.
1: That's what he keyed in on and he wanted to tell that story and i think he does a good job of it because like we talked about last week someone being trapped with a certain character, an author being trapped with a character um and then physically trapped in this story so as far as other other things in the production um william goldman wrote two other adaptations of stephen king's work after this one here and that was hearts in atlantis in 2001 and dreamcatcher in 2003. Uh, last week, you mentioned that he adapted a theatrical version of Misery that was released. And it was actually William Goldman adapting his script for the stage from this film uh, for that 2015-2016 Broadway season, which had Bruce Willis
0: as Paul Sheldon and Laurie Metcalf as Annie Wilkes. I was thinking about how much this would work, like how well this would work as as a production like that, because it, again, it's kind of a narrow focus and there's not a lot of characters and... I don't know, it just seems like it would work.
1: Circling back to how Stephen King sells the rights to misery. Um, He was initially skeptical that a Hollywood studio wouldn't be able to make a faithful version of this film. Um, He, but he was impressed with one adaptation of his work, Stand By Me, and agreed to sell misery under the proviso Rob Reiner would either produce or direct the film.
0: Yeah, and I remember us talking about how much he liked that adaptation. Um, I agree with his take on that one. (laughs) I, I think that is one of the best ones I've seen. I'm not so sure about this one I think you can already pick up on that um, it's certainly not bad um, it's certainly at least um, a solid adaptation um, I, I am not convinced that it is on that level of stand by me uh, or even some of the other ones we've seen
1: yeah I can see why you'd feel that way I mean like stand by me is like so relatable for anyone coming of age sort of thing and this story is like after reading the book, it's it's a bit different than, than what that set up as far as expectations in a Stephen King story. It's adding a really cool performance element to some of that work that was going on there while stripping back some of the things that made it maybe more layered. But yeah. I think like seeing this movie and seeing the performances, it, I really enjoyed going through the journey and seeing sure. like all of it brought to screen in a way that is definitely better than than my expectations were. I I, I'd heard good things about the film. I knew uh, famously that Kathy Bates was amazing in it, but like I I was pretty blown away by it. And and like for a film that came out in nineteen ninety, it felt pretty modern to me. And some of the performances are a little big, but Modern in the sense that like it kept my attention the entire way through and there wasn't any sort of like disconnect there.
0: Sure. I feel like I'm going to need to defend what I just said there and I want to get into it more, but I'm, I'm waiting for our spoiler section.
1: I mean, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing, you know, all your thoughts on it. I do want to finish out by saying that we've talked a lot about Kathy Bates and I, and I wanted to bring attention to the fact that she won an Oscar for this film nominated for an Oscar. I think also she may have won the Golden Globe uh, in this film as well. and. As far as a massive, a massive moment, she's the first woman to win a Best Actress Award for a horror film Wow, in
0: 1990, yeah. And honestly, well-deserved. I, I think her performance is is the thing that stands out most for me. But yeah, let's move into spoilers, man, because I got, I got stuff to say, but it, it will require getting into what happens at the end.
1: Yeah, let's do it. So after a serious car crash, novelist Paul Sheldon is rescued by former nurse Annie Wilkes, who claims to be his biggest fan. Annie brings him to her remote cabin to recover, where her obsession takes a dark turn when she discovers Sheldon is killing off her favorite character from his novels. As Sheldon devises plans for escape, Annie grows increasingly more controlling, even violent as she
0: forces the author to shape his writing to suit her twisted fantasies. And honestly, all of that plays out pretty well. Um, But in the book, we get this meta narrative where we're seeing the thing that he is writing and we're seeing him write it in such a way that it is like the, the he's he's synthesizing what's happening to him and we're seeing it come out in the narrative. Um, and all that elements really cool. I knew that wasn't going to make it into the movie because how do you really do that? Unless you show us the nested narrative as like a separate little mini film, which would be the, maybe the way to do it. I was kind of hopeful that that would be the case
1: because like I, I know that would balloon the budget and it'd get it us would. in a period piece sort of set design and everything could like have that. Kind of fun though. It would have been cool to see like, and you could bring in some really famous actors for those roles yeah. as well. And it'd be really, it'd be a cool way to like pit the two narratives together. Cause like we said in the, in the book episode uh, last week, the the what's going on in his in his narrative is also sort of drawing parallels to what's going on in the real world
0: yeah it's really important and and it gets really into the struggle to force yourself to write a thing and the struggle to write a thing that you at first are against but then you like come come around on it and then he finds ownership of it and then at the end of the novel uh version of the events when he lights the manuscript on fire It's revealed that he had hidden it in the movie. It's clear that it was the actual manuscript he wrote that he is burning here. And when he goes on to have success uh, later, it's for a new novel, um, which is just a different, less complicated version than what happens in the book where it is misery's return that he wrote for Annie Wilkes that he makes millions off of and that he finds success with. Um, and so he's always going to have this complicated relationship with this work that he wouldn't have made without her. Um, and that becomes a lot cleaner here as we see him fully move on from it and find success elsewhere. And we hear that it's oh, it's going to get glowing reviews and it's do- going to do really great. So he's just completely left that behind. And there's no complicated relationship between this um, more popular art that he had been making. Whereas for Stephen King, we know that in many ways this represented his being tied to the horror genre. And how as much as he wanted to move on and write other stuff, he knew that he was tied to the horror genre and he couldn't leave it behind. And of course, he went on for the rest of his career to continue to write very popular horror novels. So to me, that feels a little bit more honest with the story and, and what it was trying to say.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I remember last week you you brought up this idea that like it is it is wild that he doesn't burn Misery's return and yeah. and how like it would have been cleaner as far as the arc is concerned of him like saying you know I'm not lis- I'm not gonna always listen to my fans I'm gonna do what I want to do and and in keeping it it almost like keeps her memory alive in a really yeah. complicated way but I like that now we have now we've kind of stayed, stayed with it for another week and it, it feels like another interesting wrinkle to a story to have a character be conflicted
0: in that way I was surprised But I enjoyed that aspect of it because I think it's true to life I think it's true to to the complicated nature and and, and artists often feel with they're really popular works, especially if they don't feel like they're necessarily as, you know, artistically sound as something else yeah. they may have done. In my
1: research, I found something about Reiner commenting on this in a, in a really interesting way that kind of, you know, looks at the nature of adaptations. So, uh, yeah, like you said, King has Paul pretend to burn Misery's return at the end and then go on to see it published. But the film has him actually destroy the only copy. Reiner suspects that King, even subliminally, fears what might happen if he doesn't supply his constant readers with the kinds of books they expect from him their director wanted to affirm Paul's desire to move on to other things so he's kind of making a commentary here about like even though King will go this far and say all this stuff and shove a story that down down Annie Wilkes throat that she forced him to write and all that kind of stuff ultimately he realizes the significance of a story that his readers will devour and enjoy and it's funny because like reiner's basically saying here like paul should move on to other things
0: yeah and and i get that message i just um i don't know man uh there's a reason we're all watching this there's a reason that stephen king is stephen king and you can't take away his success as a horror author um and to do that is almost disingenuous
1: he appeals to both literary and general audiences he appeals to to a lot of people and i think Kreiner may be right here in thinking that King, even if he didn't necessarily want to write it, realizes like the significance of a story like that and how it can satiate and it can bring joy to some people and it can and it can kind of like deal with his Annie Wilkes and keep them at bay for, for another for another day or so some, in, in some way. Yeah, I, I just thought that was an interesting way for him to look at it.
0: I think Stephen King has found a way to appreciate that element of his work and to find reward in it. And to not yeah. necessarily view it as a purely negative thing. And that was like a process that clearly he was struggling with at this time. He's, he's, he's developed the Richard Bachman, you know, alternate him. He's writing other kinds of things. Now, if he decided to never write another horror book again at this point in his career, do I think he would have gone on to still be a successful author? I do. Um, I think he's just too good um, in, in whatever he writes to where that wouldn't, you know, uh, it wouldn't be the case. But would he be as successful? I don't know about that. Because clearly he's really, really good at this stuff. And yeah, I think a lot of this book was about him learning to embrace that part of himself, despite how having mixed feelings about it. And a lot of that is absent in this version. And I kind of missed yeah. it.
1: Well, now that we've talked a lot about the end, let's let's jump back to the beginning (laughs) because we like non-linear narratives, I guess. Yeah, yeah, we're jumping around, yeah. Paul Sheldon here driving in his 66 Mustang or 65 Mustang or whatever, really erratically down this mountain. Yeah, And then eventually, of course, crashes. Obviously going to get
0: in an accident. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course, crashes. He only had one glass of champagne. They noted um, in the movie that he has a single glass whenever he completes the book. So they took out the element of this being drunk driving too, which is another element that I thought It's kind of more true to Stephen King and like what he's trying to get at, because I think um, the substance abuse, right, is such a key part of this. And substance abuse kind of gets him into trouble. It kind of gets kicks all this whole thing off. Right. And he blames that completely on why why he got in a crash. uh, Paul Sheldon does. He's like, "I, I drank too much champagne. I was a little bit too drunk to drive and I shouldn't have tried it.
1: Yeah, um, in the book.
0: Whereas here, yeah. which here he's had a single glass, he seems sober. And it's really just that he's like, I don't know, being very cavalier and, and kind of speeding and, and driving a car not suited to the weather, I guess.
1: Annie Wilkes comes in and pulls him out and in a feat of strength that I did not see coming, yeah. Fireman carries him up a snowy mountain uh back to his back to her place and i kind of
0: wondered how she was able to attain that in the in the book but we see it here (laughs) she throws him right over the shoulder
1: yeah i mean she you gotta i guess just that farmer strength you know she's working a farm by herself so i I was like you know what there's just enough here for me to believe it I i imagined
0: her as a her as a little bit more physically large and imposing in the book and um Paul Sheldon is a little more spindly and thin sure. in the book, whereas these versions were were a little more evenly matched. To where it was like a little harder to believe her just, you know, throwing James Conn over her shoulder and walking away with him.
1: <laughs> um, so, how about that reveal when when she pulls back the covers and he sees his legs for the first time?
0: Yeah, that was really good. I, I wanted to say like there are certain horrific moments in this movie that land so well; they're really well done. I thought revealing, the reveal of the legs was was harrowing. Um, again, I went through some similar injuries in a car accident. I've talked about this before. Um, mine looked pretty different than this. But I did notice there was some similar verbiage being used, compound fractures, and stuff like that. I didn't see any of that in what we were shown. So in many ways, this also felt like it was almost tastefully withholding. And I think that's why we also got the change later, which, which we can talk about, where um, there's a long history I feel like of of directors choosing to change the main weapon that like a Stephen King villain uses for whatever reason to swap it from an from a bladed weapon to a to a hammer to drop it from a hammer to a bladed weapon. Um, and so we get the we get the opposite of the shining here and instead of the axe that any any uh, wields in the book we get this sledgehammer. Yeah, uh, it's still a horrific scene, but um, not as gory as uh, chopping yeah. off a foot would have been, you know like it is yeah, It's in interesting
1: because I, I thought I guess I you know, I'm no medical expert But I thought that a compound fracture was like bone through skin It is. and I guess I didn't see yeah, that's what I was that. saying I didn't yeah. see now.
0: There was like little blood spots, but yeah, we didn't see any bones sticking through skin and the other thing was <laughs> Later on in the movie She's like oh your your legs are getting so much better and right before she re injures him right and, and hobbles him his legs look fine when they show them they look like they have fully healed they do i'm like if he had compound fractures and they were never seen to other than just like splinted yeah no surgeries he they would not be fine (laughs) they might heal over but they would not look like just normal legs that nothing ever happened to was it something that like viscerally affected you in any
1: ways like was it something that like turned your stomach or anything or was it kind of just like because it stayed more sanitized i'm just saying the injuries in general seeing someone dealing with similar kinds of injuries
0: I had a big old external fixator that screwed into my leg. And yeah. uh, seeing that evokes it more to me than seeing what he had going on here. I don't know. It looked it looked horrific and it looked convincing, but it didn't look convincing enough to where it connected to me to the real injuries I sure. had. Um, but that, that, that's just me. That Other people may feel differently. Um, another little note I'll give just while we're on the topic, um, because I had very similar injuries. I know where Rob Brenner chose to do this. I think it was on purpose, but... When whenever um, Paul Sheldon transfers from the wheelchair to the bed, mm-hmm. um, he has the the wheelchair armrest comes off, and they they transfer right, which is just how it's done. Except Annie takes his legs and moves them over first, I and saw then he that, pulls yeah. himself over. That's just not how you do it. Like you move your you move your body first, and then it's easier to pull the legs over gently to come to where your body mass is now. Um, It's just a way to do it with less jostling less pain But I think he did that on purpose because we wince when we see it. We're like, oh, he she has just grabbed the legs and Moved him over so I'm not knocking the film for doing that. I think it was actually smart to do it that way It's just not the right way to do it. (laughs) Yeah Uh,
1: And you you noticing the the swap from the the axe to the mallet here or the axe to the the hammer here really Uh, It's interesting because, yeah, like in The Shining, it was originally a mallet and it becomes an axe. axe. It's the opposite here. (laughs) I feel like if you're doing that and he's he's clearly was influenced by The Shining to want to do Stephen King works, he must have done that. On purpose. right? Again,
0: it makes it a much less gory scene than it would have been.
1: It definitely does. And I actually read that William Goldman stated that the reason he decided to adapt the book to film was because of this gruesome scene and the effect it would have on the audience. Um, He loved the scene and argued for it to be included with the axe. But Reiner insisted that it be changed so that she only breaks his ankles. Goldman subsequently wrote that this was the correct decision as the visual depiction of an amputation may have caused the audience to hate Annie instead of
0: sympathizing with her madness. Interesting. So that does show that they are really trying to go with Annie as a little bit more sympathetic here. Yeah. That betrays that to me. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe that's something that people really like about this film adaptation, that Annie is a little more sympathetic. Um, because I would say the Annie we get in the book is not sympathetic, ultimately. No. Yeah, I don't um, think so. she, she does enough... I mean, this version has also killed a bunch of babies, so I don't know how sympathetic we should be finding her. Um, but the the version in the book is just even worse, and she runs over a a state trooper's head with a with a driving lawnmower. So, yeah. Kathy Bates <laughs> Kathy Bates was actually disappointed that that didn't make it into the film, and uh, Rob Reiner said that they had to remove it because he felt people may laugh at that scene. Yeah, I mean, it's very over the top. Uh, I laughed a little bit about it when it happened in the book. I wanted to see if you see anything about this in your research, but I thought another direct reference was this entire character of Buster, who is investigating this the whole time, only to finally arrive at this, you know, key sequence, this key moment gets clued into Paul Sheldon being in the, in the basement. We get the reveal where he sees him down on the bottom and then immediately he gets shot in the back in a shocking way. Yeah. I thought this was Dick Halloran. Yeah. In the in the Kubrick adaptation of The Shining, um, I thought this was a, a complete parallel, right? Like this whole journey of Dick Halloran getting there and to save the day and then he just gets cut down. Um, So I, I thought that that was like some sort of reference. Is that is that what you saw? Yeah. I
1: didn't see that, but I, I picked up on that, too. And okay. I actually was thinking about this in the context of Stephen King actually not liking Kubrick's The Shining because right. we now have. <laughs> Rob Reiner, who really wants, clearly he likes adapting Stephen King's work and he respects his work, but then you also have him referencing the film that Stephen King doesn't like, which inspired him to want to make Stephen King adaptation. So it's getting into this interesting web of like Stephen King. I, I just still think to this day that like I know Stephen King is so close to his work because he creates it and he wants it to stay. Uh, truthful to like the things that he does, but I think it's silly to think that he doesn't respect Kubrick's The Shining at this point. And this, he said that this he thinks along. he said
0: that he thinks it's a pretty movie and it looks good, but it has no soul. Sure. He doesn't like it, man. He says sure it's too it cold. Okay. <laughs> um. You know, we 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 disagree. We like that film, um, even though as we recognize its differences, right? And here, I, I think um he he's probably more okay with it because. This is an invented character who is a stand-in for another this trooper character who gets his head run over with a lawnmower in the book. So if anything, this is actually like a a gentler fate um, for this Buster character, whereas Dick Halloran survives in in the version of The Shining, which is I guess a book spoiler, but um, not a big one. Um, this is quite different. So while we're on the topic of Buster, I thought him and Virginia were actually quite cute together. They were funny throughout. I mentioned earlier that they were kind of comic relief, but they're back and forth as a couple. Her coming onto him in the car, and he's like, you're my deputy. While we're in this car. And then she's like, oh, he's out there cheating on me with somebody who are you cheating on me with. And I just thought their relationship was really was really um, adorable. And it makes his death hit all the harder when it does happen. Because um, I was wondering, I was like, are they still going to kill this character off? They sure do. So that that was definitely a shocking moment. Um, You know, I I think he spares us seeing Virginia's reaction to finding out about her beloved husband dying. Um, But maybe that's for the best.
1: Yeah, that would have been brutal. Um, I love those characters. You know, I think they they really round out the film in a way that I felt like the the police were you know kind of throw away characters in, in king's story because they just yeah. show up and and well
0: we're we're so locked into sheldon's perspective we don't ever see what's going on with the investigation it's only his like imaginings because he has very vivid imagination he imagines what might be going on but we never actually see it yeah
1: reading the novels and yeah. like sort of deducing some things and working his way through it the mystery i i thought was fun and again i i thought that it was it was the way to break away from locking us into that room because we are very locked in that room yeah but I, you know, I think the audience wants to feel some of the investigation to there too, because I did, I did find it intriguing, and it's an interesting element even for people who've read the
0: story. I think honestly, because we don't get the escape that the book provides, the book within a book provides. Yeah, we instead see the investigation. That's our moment outside of this story, and we get to see something else. We get to see the investigation. Whereas the only thing you get in the book is when we actually are reading what's being written. Um, I kind of prefer that but I can see why the choice was made um, I did want to again circle in on this this little bit of elements of humor that I actually thought worked really well one of them that I thought was hilarious was when um, Paul Sheldon pees in that, that little container which by the way totally legit that's what those things look like yep. um, and then she's just waving it around while she's talking in his eyes just as he's like Oh, he's it's horrified. He's going to flash on me. Yeah, he does not want that on him. <laughs> he's favorite... just like gesturing everywhere. That was really funny. Yeah.
1: One of my favorite moments is uh, he first gets the typewriter down, and he starts typing away, and you're like, oh, I guess he's going to start, I guess. He... And then we cut to the shot where it just says, fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> I the, thought th- another on the Shining banner.
0: reference, you think? I'll work and no play. I almost th- thought we might get that. <laughs> yeah. It was funny. And there was definitely just like a lighter overall tone um at least to the humor elements even as we do get into darkness so it's like a maybe you could argue a little more dynamic in that way
1: i did find it interesting with that nested narrative it's not obviously nested here in the film but the when they're talking back and forth about some of the scenes i was still able to follow what they were saying but it was also it felt like it was speaking to me as the book reader saying like these are the moments that you know we're addressing and talking about, but we're not going to see them play out completely. I'm curious, like how much of that is picked up by audiences who didn't read the book and just in general, some of the, some of the more subtle things, uh, that, that are referenced, but not necessarily super plot relevant.
0: Yeah. I don't know, honestly, because, um, even as a book reader, I was having trouble following What the plot of this misery returns novel really was they were just referencing like some arguments were happening Oh, who's her true love really going to be I did like that the whole thing about the bee sting made it in there though That was because that was a very important moment But it is robbed of a lot of what makes it cool in the book in the sense that um, He just came up with it. It is this very convoluted B plot Um, and it sounds absolutely ridiculous and it is but in the book, like it's it's a lot longer journey to arrive at that, and he ends up using a suggestion from her, um, which again ties her intrinsically into the book and into her, into its creation.
1: We get to the point where he's picking the lock and he's and he's moving out of that single room that he's been in this entire time, and yeah. supposedly the cast and crew were so excited for the scene where he picks the bedroom lock and rolls himself around the house to explore because quote, we had literally only moved like four feet, but it was exciting to be <laughs> shooting something other than that bedroom. So just thinking of a crew again, at least as far as the shooting schedule, I'm not sure, but James Con was in that bed for like 15 weeks. So you have to wow. assume all these people are coming to bed, coming to work every single day. And they're filming in that same bedroom for-, for all of those scenes as well. So yeah, to get to move anywhere else must've been really exciting. Uh, and then yeah, the way he, he explores the house feels similar to the movie uh I like the the ways that they rather than the string there's like things that he's moving and ways that yeah, she's able the, to the penguin south, that
0: he's leaving yeah mm-hmm. it's not facing the right direction which i did notice when he put it back it was facing a different direction yeah, for sure. um, and she's she's caught that in this version she also it, there's some similarities and some differences right like um with the whole memory lane thing we find out that a lot of her history is similar um we don't get the axe murder that she has apparently committed uh from the book um we, we end on the reveal that maybe she's responsible for all these maybe deaths and, and she does seem to be which is I think all you really need <laughs> to drive home just how, how how frightening she is um and then we we do immediately get that where she comes home recognizes that he's been out um one thing that is different here and I think it was fully introduced for the movie was this whole gambit with the with the wine right because he has all these drugs that he hasn't been taking yeah. I guess that's I know that's different because in the book he's taking them. Um, and instead, he tries to poison her or like knock her out with the wine, and then she just knocks it over and like a you know just in a clumsy moment.
1: Do you think that um, she knew what was going on there? Do you think she? I don't maybe think st- so. No, um, you think it was just
0: clumsiness. In this version, she didn't seem as like crafty as she did in the book. By the end, like she's almost become supernatural. She's not like this is a this is not a supernatural novel, and and neither is the film, but. She is almost beyond that. And 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 you get to the point where you can understand why Paul is so terrified of her and, and thinks that she actually is still alive and that she is somehow able to best all these, you know, these cops when they show up like she's still out there. She's still going to kill you um, because he's so just frightened of her and what she's able to do. And she's called him on so many things. This version of Annie, while, while frightening, I, I, she felt more human to me and she felt like she was capable of making more more mistakes you you mentioned sympathetic and i i think it's more like we
1: pity her more for some reason in this version realizing that she's has mental illnesses and clearly has committed atrocities like killing babies and things like that but yeah kathy bates performance really sells us on there's like an innocence there at times that that maybe has
0: something to do with the those illnesses she has i'll tell you what goes a long way misery the pig what an adorable yeah. fucking pig. When that pig yeah. jumped up on the bed, I'd be like, I'd be petting that pig. I would not be looking like, <laughs> I'd not be looking like, oh my God, get this pig away from me. I'd be like, oh, will give him scritches. Yeah. I was like, give that pig some scritches. So cute. Such it's a, cute a do- pig. dog pig, basically. Dog it's pig.
1: A dog. <laughs> yeah. So the, I was reading by the way, and you mentioned last week, I guess I just didn't understand the details. Originally when Stephen King was writing this story, he wanted to write a story where from what I understand, the pig was going to eat Paul Sheldon. And then, uh, out of his skin, she would make a binding for the book he had written. Yes, which is absolutely insane. And then that's when she would have called it the Annie Wilkes first
0: edition. It literally yeah. his
1: skin becomes the the cover the pages, of the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Couldn't believe and it. he
0: ended up he ended up abandoning that. Um, and that was kind of his talking about how the creative process goes and how you, you he had an ending planned out right. And when you're when you're when you're outlining a book, that's the ending he had. And he's writing the thing. And at some point while he's writing it, he has to realize like, that's not the right ending. So I'm going to write away from that. And he said that one of the things that surprised him was finding out how sort of resilient Paul Sheldon was and how he was able to fight back in in, in these kinds of ways. And um, I, I think he ultimately found a better ending for it. Um, I think he found the right ending for it, which I know Stephen King gets a lot of trash for his endings. I think this is one in the book version, especially where I think this was the right ending.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't... I see nothing wrong with the ending of this story. I, I actually really like it. I want to address the scene. The hobbling scene is what it's yeah, become known as. Yeah, the hobbling as. scene, yeah. Because... It, that foot turned sideways, man. That, it was pretty visceral. It's visceral, man. And, yeah. and they... They nailed that. I, I read that uh, the legs were fake. They were molded out of gelatin. Armatures okay. with wires were inserted into the prosthetic ankle so that when Annie hit them with the sledgehammer, they would bend at the desired gruesome
0: angles. It says they, but they only showed one. I thought we were going to get a shot of the second one, but we just hear it. Yeah, we hear it for the second one. Yeah. Maybe it just didn't work out shot-wise or something. Yeah, yeah, they probably shot it and then decided not to show it because maybe it was a too, little too much or something. Yeah.
1: And, and to see the facial reaction
0: sometimes is good, too. Like You like to have a reaction yeah. in film. You get a lot of reaction. I heard putting that that wedge between the two feet. Something about that is just really disturbing, too. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah, It feels like ritualistic or something. Yeah. Yeah. Like something. I don't know. Crazy. Well, he's just Uh, so helpless. He can't do anything in this moment. He's strapped down. He's at her uh, whims. He's powerless.
1: There were holes cut into the mattress so that Khan could hide his real legs up to the knees. So he's kind okay. of like you know bent underneath the bed there. For I had the to be uncomfortable,
0: because. but yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, after after the scene was filmed, uh, James Khan turned to Rob Reiner and said, "You're a sick fuck." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like it. <laughs> yeah, and then just just another fun thing when Kathy Bates picked up her Oscar and made her speech. One thing she said humorously was, "quote I would like to thank Jimmy Kahn and apologize publicly for the ankles."
0: <laughs> i like it yeah i thought she was gonna say something about dirty birdies or something um uh, yeah a lot of those lines have become so iconic and they're right out of the, you know they're right out of the book and in many ways this is a very faithful adaptation but i think it's one of those interesting examples where a couple of key changes does make all the difference in the world to where i still don't want to call this faithful even if, if you look at the elements of it it seems to be right and we get so much of the same character. We get so many of the same lines and scenes. But there's something very essential to the book that is omitted. And through that omission, I still feel like this isn't 100% faithful, if that's even possible, in, in making the jump.
1: Yeah, it's like, it does just enough to to really, I think, drive home most of what the book was getting at. But if, if you're talking about like the sort of layered, more complicated look at like all of the things that Stephen King, especially because in hindsight, he kind of has been saying that the story is meant to represent his addiction more than yeah. maybe some of the other things that that people are pulling out of it So like if that's really the heart of what he was trying to get out to to not
0: have that be as much of a factor in the film clearly feels like it's It's you know, different. I think it's both but I I think he emphasizes that almost as like a defense yeah, I totally where it's see like because yeah. people I think do people do get a little like Dialed in on the idea that like oh he must hate his fans and, and, you know, look at Misery, look at this book he wrote. And I, I think he's trying to say, like, no,
1: it's the most extreme of his fans. The ones who
0: are not they don't see the the human behind the artist. Right. Yeah. And I don't know all the details to this, but I don't know if you're aware of this. But at some point, um, a fan broke into his house and oh, wow. I think had a weapon and was like, I think he ended up not being home when it happened was the only reason. But like a fan broke into his house with a weapon. So like he has had some pretty scary run ins with with fans. Um, to where, you know, it's hard to blame him for being a little bit worried about this.
1: I read somewhere that he he meant for Annie to be like the amalgamation of all of the his his most like fringe fans that that were kind of like scary
0: in ways. Um, yeah. And, and we wrote we talked about this last week. He had just published The Eyes of the Dragon. And that book was not well received by his fans. He's getting a lot of pushback at the time in which he was drafting this one. So I think some of that was coming out.
1: I also do want to address a change that I felt more and it was it was present in the book, but it played up more here. I think that Paul really realizes that he can leverage a pseudo love for Annie. Yeah in this film and he like you know plays up the date he plays up the the celebration the love that they may actually share which was present a little bit or maybe some implied relationship stuff there but she even goes as far as to say like i love you and don't say it back because i know you don't mean it and then it slowly builds to something that she believes and then he can leverage against her in this scenario where he has almost no power stephen king didn't go down that route even though it was there
0: you, you know he kind of does like i think a lot of the the outward actions are the same but what's different here is we're not inside his head we don't get voiceover which i actually think was uh was a clever and uh, cleverly done i'm glad we didn't get the voiceover it would have been really tempting to do um and so because of that we don't know for sure how he feels about her right where it's all reaction it's all him doing stuff when she's not looking and that kind of betray the way he really feels but in the book, we get Paul Sheldon going, I want to fucking kill her. I would kill her right now if I could. And then he says something nice to her. And you're like, OK, so, you know, he's lying from the jump. So it's just a little different. Um, But I remember a lot of the same stuff gets said to her in the book. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the final confrontation, because this is a big moment, right? There's kind of an explosion of violence here. She comes in, he lights the stuff on fire, hits her over the head with the typewriter, which it was the back in the book. They roll around, he's punches her in the face at one point. He's like trying to strangle her. She
1: shoots him in the shoulder. She shoots him, gun. you're right. Yeah.
0: She shoots him with the gun. Um, He's he's uh, she's shoving the paper in her mouth, which I, I wasn't sure if that was gonna make it into the movie. Did you think he was gonna say, suck my book again? Or no? I thought maybe, but it just does not get said. <laughs> oh, <here. laughs> I did
1: notice with all this talk of profanity. I think he says,
0: eat it, eat it or something like that. Yeah.
1: With all this talk of profanity, she can't stand it, all this stuff. I did notice that throughout the whole film, she called him dirty birdie." She called him all this other stuff. And then she calls him a fucking cocksucker or just yep. maybe just a cocksucker at the end of. The, yeah.
0: Which shows her being a bit of a hypocrite,
1: maybe yeah. you would argue. Yeah. Or, or like her most base, like she gets down to like that primal anger or something that she can no longer control her societal, you know, what she thinks is right and all that kind of stuff. for yeah. morals. Well,
0: and she, and some of this is a front, right? Because she's killing people. So obviously she doesn't care that much about it. Right. If you're killing people, how can you talk about cursing as a problem? <laughs> sure. Um, and, and so, of course, she's of course, she's a hypocrite. Um. But yeah, I mean, I thought this this moment was actually like pretty dramatically violent, um, for what we had seen so far. Yes, we had seen a man get shot through the chest, through the back, um, gruesome with a shotgun. Man. Pretty gruesome, pretty yeah, gruesome moment. But, um, you know, we saw the leg get bent, um, or the ankle get bent. But this moment is actually, I think, the most like, as far as far as like a sustained level of violence, um, it's pretty dramatic, and then and, and um. I don't know. It worked pretty well for me. And then he's crawling away, and she has the moment where she jumps back on top of him. It didn't go quite as far as the book did, just because that's the nature of the book, right? The book really goes really, really far in every scene. Um, but it was pretty close. I was surprised at how close it was.
1: Yeah. Um, we don't get him losing fingers. Uh, we don't get true the no birthday thumb cake chopped off. Yeah, no birthday the, cake thing. No, no, no birthday cake But I do want to say how I like how it plays out in a wide like this confrontation I met this is the one I was referencing earlier We get this wide almost like bird's-eye look at their struggle where he's crawling across the ground and she's he's either hit her in the head and There's the, 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 the scramble there and the way that that plays out so we can see that whole room that we've been trapped in the whole movie and um, Yeah, it's really visually interesting.
0: I want to highlight that for people in case they're listening to the movie episode only and haven't read the book. In the book, Annie Wilkes chops his thumb off and then serves him a birthday cake with the thumb as the center candle. I think he
1: dreams the actual...
0: Uh, A birthday cake? No, that really happens. Does it? I
1: thought I could have sworn it was a dream.
0: Okay. I mean, I have to go back and look for sure now that you're making me doubt it, but I was pretty certain that actually happens. But that just goes to show you uh, there is a little bit of a difference in the Annie Wilkes of the book um, and how much farther she's willing to go.
1: So at the end here, uh, Paul gets away. He seems to have been healing somewhat. He's walking with a cane.
0: This is such a funny view of how authors' lives are, And, and we've seen this before in other Stephen King adaptations, I feel like um, a little bit with like rear, rear window and only Stephen King because like there's not many authors like you could maybe secret them. window secret C- secret window, not rear window. You're right. There's only a few authors that can even like dream of this level of fame. Like there's so few. And so the idea but yeah i feel like this perpetuates the idea that authors are like wearing full suits going to ritzy (laughs) lunches with their literary agents in new york city and like like that's their lives and like that's just so rare
1: there's a percentage of of authors very small percentage of authors maybe especially back
0: then again stephen king is in in a very rarefied air and but but i think this contributes to because there is a mis misperception out there that people who are like oh you're a published author you must be like this because that's what they've seen in movies
1: well it's interesting too because i don't get that vibe from he's always kind of been more uh like t-shirt and jeans kind of author i agree it's played up
0: more again i think the the version of paul sheldon in the book is a little more similar to stephen king a little more blue collar um you know this version is that a little bit more of a new york elite who's talking about going out to ritzy new york restaurants and wearing full suits and maybe to
1: differentiate stuff. to me it seem like it's not direct author insert as much as it, it obviously yeah it also
0: it also really sh- drives a wedge between him and annie audience and creator True. um but I, it's yeah, not yeah. the most favorable of ways honestly you, you look at him like, he, like i don't know like the, it's hard to fully empathize with that for that life and that version of that character yeah
1: so we get him uh, sitting down They're talking about, like you said before, there's a new book that he's created that's doing well or getting good reviews. And then
0: uh, this it's called, by the way, I paused it and looked at the title. It's called okay. The Higher Education of J. Philip Stone. That is the name of his new book. So he is not writing another not- misery book. He is writing his literary opus.
1: Do you think this this like book starts with a,
0: a little boy and a skunk in a cart kind <laughs> <I> of thing? <laughs> <or>? <laughs> <laughs> because something that's similar. It does happen in the book. Um he has written this misery returns novel that is making millions. And then he is going to write a new literary novel. So we get a little bit of that moving on and and being willing to try something else, but he has already profited off this other thing. And she does also pitch the idea of him writing a nonfiction book. And he basically just shuts that down. Like I'm never going to revisit that trauma, but in the book, I would argue you could perceive the book you are currently reading as that book. Um, So there's another little layer there that I, that I find really fun.
1: Yeah, especially because he he says if he ever did write it, he would embellish it, yeah. and this is kind of like a you know who knows how how this story would have played out, and if this is this is meant to be truth in the lore. But uh, yeah. I like that at the end we get the similar scene where he's still seeing Annie Wilkes, she's pushing a cart up towards him with I think a birthday cake, so maybe a reference mm. to that other scene. Yeah. Um he's seeing her
0: in a, in someone who clearly isn't isn't her it's a, it's someone else although she, she does say up. i'm your number one fan which again brings it all the way back around like uh it's it's that fear of your fans um comes back back to center Sage.
1: we get that reaction from james conn from from paul sheldon too where he kind of looks at her and he has that full like, oh yeah. shit, and then he's like he's like uh you know that's very sweet
0: of you or something <laughs> yeah, and, yeah yeah very fun film um i think we've arrived at the point where we need to decide though uh which was better.
1: I have one more thing I wanted to talk about, Uh, just that Stephen King was so impressed with Kathy Bates' performance in this film that he later wrote two more roles for her. The title role in his novel, Dolores Claiborne, was written with Bates in mind, and Bates later starred in the film adaptation of Dolores Claiborne in 1995. King also wrote the script for the TV miniseries, The Stand. His original novel featured a male character named Ray Flowers. Upon hearing that Bates wanted to be involved in the miniseries, King rewrote the part as a woman, Ray Flowers, R-A-E
0: Flowers, just so Bates could play the part. Cool. I didn't know she was in that. We still need to watch that that yeah. stand miniseries version because we've only seen the, the new remake uh, new version, uh, if you want to, however you want to call that. Uh, we covered that a couple years ago now. Um, yeah, that's really fascinating. She's great. So I can see why he would be taken with her. And like, yeah, if you can get her in your in your adaptations, do it. Um, also, Dolores Claiborne is a book I've heard referenced so many times, never read. So that's, that one would be high on our list. There's lots of Stephen King stuff that we haven't covered yet. Let us know in the comments if there's anything you hear here that you would love to hear us talk about.
1: And we're pretty far along in our in our Stephen King reading. But even so, yeah. like, he's just written so much. What did you say last week? 13 or 14 projects we've covered in the podcast now? I think this was our 12th. 12?
0: Yeah. So we've done 12. But like, yeah, he's got. So many. Right. And, and we've talked about how fantasy is one thing that we know he's written some fantasy. and We haven't tackled any of it. We had ever done a Gunslinger, um, which there's a Flanagan adaptation that's been announced that we would love to tackle. Star yeah, Tower. Oh, Gunslinger. That's that's the name of the first book. In the, the first Dark book. Power yeah, series. Yeah. yeah. So um, here at the end, we like to to weigh in on whether or not we thought the book or film was better. I'm going to lead off first because I think I've tipped my hand here quite a bit. I do think the book was better. Um, this was my favorite Stephen King novel. I think I've read. And the the even as we're moving further away from it, the more I'm like, yeah, I, I think this is it, man. Um, I do still really love The Shining. That might be my number two. Um, and uh, yeah, it's hard to pick between them. But I really loved this thing. I explained all the reasons why last week, so I won't rehash them all here. Um, and I missed some of the things that I found so complex. This film is what I thought the book was. And the film was good, but the book was transcendent enough to to reach the level of of top king to me. So I, I don't think the film quite achieved that. Even among king adaptations, this would probably not be in my top three. It would I'm not sure where I would slot it, but it's it's not one of my favorites.
1: I really like this adaptation. You know I, I don't think it's it's close to the top of the list as far as Stephen King adaptations go. But I enjoyed myself the whole way through. I think it's an entertaining film. I think that uh the performance is really just i mean just i can't sing the praise enough because that really is the reason to see this movie um there's there's a lot you know i like rob reiner's look at this film i like the way he infuses some of his comedic sensibilities and it goes brutal like it it goes there as far as this film is like like the brutality of the uh stephen king story is concerned i'm actually going to take the book i agree with you in this case there was just like some complexity. Like I really did like the nested narrative. I really liked the layered look at like what all subtext or what all is is the moral of this story that Stephen King was trying to tell. And honestly, in the movie, as much as having pity for for Annie is interesting, I kind of missed almost the force of nature that she was in the book and the threat that she posed, like felt, like I mentioned in our book coverage, Stephen King loves to do these characters and have like sort of possible supernatural thing going on in his stories. And then ultimately the humans are, are sometimes more the threat or some combination of the two. And here I feel like Annie is that human threat, but borders into that supernatural as like a, a force of nature, especially in the way that she's so able to like utterly break down Paul Sheldon. Like he's like basically reverting to childhood in ways that I just didn't see in the film he's just utterly powerless and and like how how it's scary that can be and how like you can see the the danger in someone like annie and yeah ultimately i think kathy bates brought so much to this uh and but it didn't border into that sort of supernatural Space.
0: Yeah, me. it's the thing that's lost. They make her because they make her a little more sympathetic. You lose a bit of that terrifyingly evil and messed up version that we have in the book. Yeah. Um. And I agree. I missed that a little bit. The other thing I, I, I didn't talk a lot about that I did miss was was that addiction element and how the idea that, you know, Stephen King said later that Annie Wilkes was his dope habit and she was his number one fan. And, you know, I think it's both that and everything else we've been talking about. But like that whole element wasn't really present here. Like substance abuse, just you kind of would be reading into it to even see that in this version of the movie. Whereas it's very on the page in the book. You can tell that there's something going on there. He's addicted to the drug she's giving him um, and he relies on her for it. So, yeah, I missed a lot of that stuff. So ultimately, it sounds like it's the book for both of us. Yeah, uh, still. still really, really good adaptation. A fun one. Um, Just it just can't quite can't quite match the level of the original i
1: have one more thing i want to say about the film i wish i would have thought of it sooner i could not stop laughing with how often and of course like for a character like paul sheldon it's scary obviously but i couldn't stop and this is the only thing he's obviously desperate but every single time he just stuffs something down his pants or he's pulling something out of his pants in the back and the front and just the, the way that he's doing it something about it was always funny to me and it's just like i'm gonna remember this movie as like
0: james con with his hands in his pants a lot (laughs) (laughs) there is an element of like why is his hands in his pants when she comes barging in on him like what she caught him doing exactly um yeah yeah, that dirty birdie um i wanted to announce that our next episode uh is going to be a special one followed by another special one so next up we are going to be having the author paul tremblay on and if you uh aren't unfamiliar with the name he is the author of the Cabin at the End of the World, which was adapted into Knock at the Cabin very recently. We're going to have him on to talk about that adaptation. Um, If you are a fan of Stephen King and his work, Paul Tremblay is definitely an author you should be aware of and and looking into. Um, I think he writes in a very similar vein, and I think that his writing would appeal to fans of Stephen King. So um, definitely check that out. And if you are curious about that interview, uh, stay tuned for next week. The week after that, we are going to be hitting our 300th episode which is a big milestone for us. And we're going to be doing a special hall of fame induction style episode where we, induct three titles into a Hall of Fame. And if you're curious how we get to uh, the titles that we have chosen, we just released a bonus episode on our Patreon where we talk about whittling 10 down to a top six, which is what we're going to be considering for that ne- that next episode. So if you're curious about that and what criteria went into it and how we're determining what's eligible and what's not eligible, check out our most recent Patreon episode, uh, patreon.com slash ink to film. And for as little as $2, you can get access to that episode and tons of other bonus content that we have on there.
1: And make sure to also connect those on social Social media: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You know,
0: subscribe on YouTube, like the videos, hit
1: that bell, do all the things that they tell yeah. you to do on social media.
0: Leave a comment. Let us know uh, that you're there, that you're listening, and and uh, what Stephen King projects you'd be curious to hear us cover in the future. Always excited to hear about that stuff. If you are listening to this uh, podcast as audio on a podcasting platform, make sure to leave us a rating and review. That also helps get the word out and increase our visibility of our podcast.
1: And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music.
0: That's it for Misery. Uh, it's been a fun way to start the year off, but uh, next week we're going to be doing something little unusual with this this interview so i'm excited about that um but then after our 300th episode we'll be getting back to our regularly scheduled programming with the kind of thing we normally do so um exciting times we hope that you stick with us for it and until next time keep adapting